you gone? Natalie, there you are. We're continuing our series on the kingdom of God, and Nat said that she had a poem that she'd like to share with us related to the kingdom. So thank you so much, Nat. Thank you. Um, yeah. I am. I am not your Sunday best. I am not your holy Catholic wafer. I'm not your Protestant work ethic water water cracker. I'm not your capacity-filled seating, that television ministry, that beehive hairdo. I'm not even your cool neighbour who thankfully voted Greens as well. I'm not your sharp-as-attack scripture references. I'm not your cleverness, your knowledge, all stacked and packed, your degree signed with the blood of your own stigmata. I'm not your white middle-class worship CD, your love offering, your volunteer offering, your tax-deductible offering. I'm I'm definitely not Laura Ashley, and I'm not Mecca Cosmetica or Brighton Mercedes. And as pretty as it may be, I'm not the Paris end of Collins Street. I'm not your campaigns for equality. I'm not your protests against immorality. I'm not your well-drafted rehearsals and I am not the script doctor for the movie that is your life. I am words stumbling over other words. I am not eloquent speech and I am not clear diction and I'm really not very cool. I am the dirt you collected under your fingernails as you walked beside me and nobody gave you a sideways glance. I am the torn tendons in your calves as you carried baggage which was not your own. I am that broken relationship you spent years trying to gaffer tape back together and I am that grey Monday morning I heard you say would be your last. I am Allah to the old war-torn Afghan man and I created his storybook forehead. I'm the fat, hairy caterpillar that damages your lovely plants and I am that butterfly assassinated at three days old. Thank you for praising the summertime, but I am the bitter weather you sometimes feel in your bones. I am your desert storms. I am no friends. I am your tears in a closed room and I know how much they weigh. Thank you for saying thank you, but I did not help you win that Oscar. I am not your pristine sexual record, the blue skies at your daughter's wedding, your discounted white goods. I am the fingerprints on the murder weapon that you kept buried in your frozen backyard. I am a dangerous boat ride to a bloodthirsty land. I am King's Cross in the early 1980s. I am poor and veiled and strange and brown. I struggle with English. I am she. I am that boring cab ride and I am your lost way through a waste industrial estate. I am your frustration, but I am still the one who's driving. I am a known associate of outlaw motorcycle clubs. I am Barwon Head's D-Block. I am your notice of failure. Oh, you haven't received me in the mail yet. You will. I am the Centrelink queue and I am the Sudanese woman who waits and shakes in line. I am art 
basking and hanging lifeless and soiled and priceless. And you just may overlook me because I'm never actually on the stage. Yeah, I'm here, but I'm upside down, so I'm kind of closer when you stumble. I'm whispering a distorted tune. I'm the minor chord that you really just want to disconnect. I'm the sweat down your backbone as you stand waiting in the dock. I am your healer, so don't show me your health. I am your judge, so don't show me your justice. I am love, and if you close your eyes, you may just see. That's a very hard act to follow. Well done, Matt. Beautiful. I guess uh, what you were trying to express there is the complexity and the um, the mess, which is is uh, the kingdom of God, which is the subject that we've been talking about uh, for a little while now. If you have your Bibles, would you like to open up to Matthew five, and we're going to be taking some time to. Just work our way through Matthew 5, 6 and 7. Uh, the kingdom of God, which has been our, our um, focus for the last little, little while, was actually the focus and the theme of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, in the synoptic, synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, um, the term the kingdom of God, or as Matthew likes to call it, the kingdom of heaven, um, is mentioned 122 times. And so... Our thought has been as we approach um, this subject has been if we don't grasp the kingdom of God, which was Jesus' central message, we're always going to struggle to um, work through this thing called Christianity and make sense of of what it is to uh, live the Christian life. And so far, what we have primarily done is we've approached uh, the kingdom of God with some very broad brush strokes. And the kind of statements that you have heard come out have largely been these kinds of, um, kinds of terms. That the kingdom of God is God redeeming the world and restoring everything into right relationship with himself and all creation. As uh, N.T. Wright um, puts it, a a well-known New Testament theologian, he says that the kingdom of God is God putting the world to right. Um, I kind of like the word shalom. Um, I find that for me, that word shalom encaptures what um, what I see when I engage with this concept of the kingdom of God. And the word shalom is a Hebrew word which we translate peace, but I, I really like this kind of little kind of catchphrase that shalom is a world in which nothing is broken and nothing is missing. We've said that the kingdom of God is what the world would be like when God is, is fully in charge. And 
what we have, the foundation that we've been laying is this idea that, that the kingdom of God is God stepping into time and space in the, in the person of Jesus Christ and overthrowing all of the, the scripts and the agendas that we as human beings have developed in order to help um, make sense of this world. And in Christ, there was the introduction of a narrative that prioritizes mercy and justice and grace and inclusion and, um, and a stewardship of the earth. And... What we've endeavoured to do so far is to captivate you with an understanding that actually, despite all appearances, God is very active in the world. It might not look like it when you switch on um, your TV sets and watch um, the news, but actually, the message of the kingdom is that God is at work in the world, that he hasn't actually abandoned us. And in the midst of this mess, God is working out his agenda. And intertwined with this, um, with this idea of a world in which nothing is broken and nothing is missing is a key concept, and that is that God's rule and reign among us is only now and in part, but one day shall come in full. And so what we have to do is, that, is understand that the kingdom of God inhabits this strange tension between um, our present reality and the promise of a wonderful future. And we live in this awkward space where the kingdom is now but not yet. And what we've done over the last, I think, maybe uh, six or seven weeks or so is laid these concepts as a, a foundation. But what I want us to do this morning is to ground the kingdom of God. And hopefully you've been captivated and inspired and had your appetites whetted a little bit for... Uh, hey, sorry, is that me? Is that my butt, is it? That's way too large. Or right, I'll stand up. It might make it easier. Um, is what, we want to, what I want to do over the, today and next week is, is ground this thing about the kingdom of God. So it's not just some kind of ideal that's out there that, that um, yes, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's captivating. And yes, one day it will come. But what does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives in reality, in living in, uh, in Melbourne in the 21st century? How does that impact upon how we live our lives? What does this all practically mean for those of us who have bought into this radical notion of God's vision of how the world shall be? And what does it mean to be a citizen of this new regime? That God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is seeking to establish. Hopefully you've probably, 
if you've been thoughtful, reflective, maybe that has been something as um, primarily as Shane has been sharing over the last little while, that you've been kind of going, okay, how do I earth this? What, what does this look like on a day-to-day basis? And um, my proposal to you is this, is if God is putting the world to right, by implication, it must mean that he is putting us to right. And if he's putting us to right, what does that look like? So Matthew 5, uh, 6 and 7 is uh, what is commonly called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I did put up a thing on Facebook yesterday and invite you to kind of have a scan through that. And I don't know if anybody has had an opportunity to read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you haven't, that's okay. You can still um, give me your feedback. But when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, what does it elicit within you? What sort of... um, Does it challenge? Does it inspire? Um, Do you love the Sermon on the Mount? Or do you dislike the Sermon on the Mount? Or do you have a love-hate relationship with this... um, core message of Jesus. Does anybody want to share with us and throw their grace? You did put up your hand. Does anyone else, because I find I don't really understand it. That's the main, I I know it it seems simple, but I don't know if anyone else, does anyone else feel like that? Sometimes I I don't really kind of get get it. it. Yeah. Okay. Does anybody else not get Matthew 5, 6 and 7? Some parts are obvious and others are a bit veiled. Does anybody else struggle with understanding? You're just by yourself, Grace. <laughs> the rest of us are all incredible theologians and we've got to handle you. <laughs> Thanks, Jackie. A bit of moral support there for Grace. That's good. Uh, sorry, Anna. Anna. Sorry. What did I say? Grace. That's all right. There you go. Any, any other impressions of um, the Sermon on the Mount? Has anybody ever read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Maybe I should have uh, prefaced my... Has anybody read... Jackson. Um, one of the things I've always found challenging about it is some of the, the teaching in it um, it can be open to when you're interpreting it you can maybe feel like it's it can be quite trite and you often hear some of it um, being used in quite trite ways so when Jesus says things like um, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted um, or the meek will inherit the earth um, if you were to actually say that to someone while they're mourning um, it can be quite it's almost not enough. Or if you, you know, tell poor people, you know, oh, don't worry, you know, you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's like, I don't want to inherit the kingdom of God. I want some money. You know, sometimes it can be a bit too, I don't know, like it just sometimes strikes the wrong chord. But I don't think that's how Jesus means it. Yeah, just to add to, I guess, Jackson's thread of thought, um, I think what really gets me riled up is um, it really challenges the perception we have of reward 
um, and in our reward system, because um, back in the day, God was with the Pharisees or with the people who were doing really, really well. God wasn't with women. God wasn't with children. They weren't with the meek and the downtrodden. And all of a sudden you have a Messiah saying, oh, no, I'm totally with you, you know. And you think, well, my quality of life's still crap. I don't, I don't understand this. And, and I feel like we still translate that today. It's um, sometimes um, the church doesn't have martyrs. We have celebrities, which is something that came out of the Kingdom of God book, which I've been reading. And it's, it's just really interesting the way that we, in a world where we have religious freedom, certain people turn into celebrities and you have that association of God is with them and there's that reward system that, that gets associated. And I guess where are the incentives to have God if, if that's not where God is, if God is somewhere else, if that, yeah. Jackie. <laughs> Grace. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's kind of a warning that, I don't know, we kind of expect these outcomes like you do the right thing for God and God will do the right thing by you and we sort of turn things into equations where the right thing equals good outcome. So maybe it's kind of a warning that not to expect those kind of formulas and that God can be with you when everything's turning to crap. Kind of an upside down kind of thing. Beautiful. Just anybody else want to contribute? Just one more. Thanks, Paul. I think the thing that I've always found difficult about it, particularly um, as someone who's grown up in the church hearing a message of grace, is that Jesus' words to his audience in this sermon seem to actually raise the bar in terms of the level of law or rules that he's expecting people to to um, uphold, where he says, you know, you've heard X, Y, and Z, but I'm saying that this is the reality if you expect to come to God through through law. And I've struggled with that for a long time until I came to, I guess, my own adjustment of my theology around why Jesus said those things to those people at that time. And Paul, you've kind of... Uh hit the nail on the head as to uh, I think many people's discomfort with the Sermon on the Mount but I think we sometimes live in such a a sanitized church culture that we dare not question or challenge the words of Jesus or think deeply about those words in such a way that we uh, we're immune to uh, I think at times to what it was that Christ was was indicating in there, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most um, significant piece of thought, or um, it was, it wasn't literature; it was a it's a written record of um, what Jesus said. And it's an, impossible to ascertain how much impact um, the words of Jesus here in Matthew five, six, and seven have actually had upon the world. Somebody has said that um, the Sermon on the Mount is twenty minutes. That changed the world. That's how long it would take if you were to, if we were to recite the Sermon on the Mount. It would take approximately 20 minutes for us to um, um, recite those words, and they're words that have had incredible impact upon, particularly upon the Western world over the last 2,000 years. I think what Jesus is doing is um, giving us a picture of God's dream for humanity of 
a picture of his ideal for you and for me, of the kind of lives that those who have bought into the kingdom of God, what their lives would look like. And personally, I visit Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, along with the book of Proverbs, more than any other uh, portions of Scripture. And the reason that I do that is I find that um, the Sermon on the Mount helps just uh, recalibrate me and reorientate me and remind me of the things that are really important, that are really high on the agenda of of God for my life. And I find um, the Sermon on the Mount... um, a picture of incredible beauty. Um, let me just give you a very brief overview or s- summary of, um, of what it is that Jesus is saying there in those, um, in those chapters. Um, in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5, Jesus talks about us being salt and light. And what he's saying is that in our relationship to um, society as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to provide... Uh, preservation and illumination. In the ancient world, um, salt wasn't used primarily to um, add taste to food, but it was uh, in a pre-refrigeration world. The way that um, that food or meat products were prevented from going into decay was they were covered in salt. That salt helped prevent corruption from taking place. And Jesus says, as, as salt in this world as as salt and society that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven of kingdom of God that you were to live in such a way that you become a preservative that it, it, it inhibits corruption from taking place wherever you are whether it's in the workplace or in in your neighborhood and in saying that we are the light of the world he he is indicating that we're to provide illumination And what Jesus is doing is he envisages his people actually being engaged, fully engaged with this world. If there's corruption, then that's that's where we ought to be. If there's darkness, then that's where the church of God or the people of God as citizens of heaven are most needed. As opposed to the, remember the script of the Essenes that Shane shared with us. The script of the Essenes was, let's escape, let's get out of this place and and live in a place of avoidance and separation. What Jesus is saying that citizens of the kingdom actually are um, uh, intentionally engaged and participants fully in society. In fact, citizens of the kingdom of heaven look for the darkest and most difficult of situations and plant themselves there. Secondly, in verses 21 to 26 in chapter 5, Jesus begins to talk about our relationship with others. And he suggests suggests that we shouldn't get angry nor make um, derisive comments um, about others. And I always um, um, feel very challenged when I'm driving and somebody cuts in front of me and I call them an idiot with certain other ex, uh, you know, words attached to that. And this scripture always comes back to my mind that Jesus tells us that we shouldn't um, address anyone in a, such a way that puts them down. And what Jesus wants us to do is to view everyone that we interact with as an equal and as valuable. 
And he goes on to say in that little, little section of scripture that we are to go to great lengths to seek reconciliation with those in which there is estrangement. In fact, what Jesus says is that he prioritizes reconciliation on a human level over religious activity. He says, go and be reconciled with your brother before you offer your gift at the altar. Then he talks about, uh, in verses 27 to 32, about sexual integrity and covenant keeping. He says that we're not to look at others through, um, through lustful eyes. And he suggests that we should not give our body to someone unless we're prepared to give our life to them for good. And so what we see in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a call to a sexual purity and, and permanence in relationships. Then in verses 33 to 36, he talks about truth-telling. And he says that we shouldn't break our vows. And he says that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, no matter what we say, no matter how small our comments are, they should be truth and there should be no embellishment, which makes it incredibly difficult for, uh, for preachers. I've got a friend, he was, uh, he was preaching one time, we were sitting there listening to him preach, and he said, um, he said, I'm telling you the truth now, I'm not lying. He said, my eyes were literally out here on stalks. We all started to laugh, and he goes, no, 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 I'm telling you the truth. I am not lying. My eyes were literally out here on stalks. Just a little bit of embellishment, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries there a little bit as to what, what truth is. Um, then in verses 38 to 48 in chapter 5, he talks about responding to violence and our enemies, in which Rod masterfully um, talked about um, what it involves to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile. But Jesus also talks in that portion of Scripture about praying for those who persecute us and being kind not only to our, to our friends but also to our enemies. Remember the script of, uh, of the Romans and the script of the Zealots was um, very much, you know, fight your rights and Jesus turns that script on its head and he, and he, and he present, is presenting another script in verses, uh, chapter 6 and verses 1 to 4 Jesus talks about giving to the poor and what Jesus does is he assumes that we as citizens of the kingdom will be involved with the poor he just takes it for granted and that, that we'll just be generous to those who are in need but then he goes on to say, well, when you give, don't give in a consenting or a paternalistic way. And whenever you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't broadcast your generosity. The script of the Sadducees um, was very much built around making themselves wealthy on the backs of the poor. And again, Jesus comes and suggests there is an alternative way of living life. And then when it comes to spirituality in, in chapter 6, verses 5 to 18, which we're familiar, many of us will be familiar with, with the Lord's Prayer and with other spiritual disciplines such as uh, 
fasting. Jesus talks about being succinct and simple in our prayer life and suggests that um, authentic spirituality has a secrecy to it, that we are to go into our room and close the door and shut the world out so there's just us and God. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that when we are by ourselves, when we don't have an audience, and we don't have to think of anything else, where do our thoughts and our affections go to? So what we contemplate in the private place, I think Jesus is getting to, is actually our true God. And again, Jesus is addressing this script of the Pharisees who love to make a public display of their spirituality. And then in um, chapter 6, 19-24, he talks about our relationship to money and possessions. And basically, in summary, he just says, um, we should have money and possessions, but they just shouldn't have us. And he talks about two potential gods in our life, God or mammon. And we can only serve one or the other. There is no middle ground. There are no alternatives. And then verses 25 to 34 of chapter 6, he talks about not worrying. And he goes, guys, live as though God is present and your source. Trust God to care for you. And what he importantly embeds in this um, section of scripture is... He suggests that we should frame our understanding of God around that in which God is perceived as being a loving father. And so the question is, how do you see God? And any construct of God that is is not founded solidly on the understanding that God is a loving God who wants to care for you is probably idolatry. And then... In chapter 7, verse 1, he talks about how we respond to those who are wrong. And he cautions us not to judge. And suggests that we should be very aware of our own faults and failures. I think each one of us would acknowledge that um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is outlining an absolutely beautiful way to live. And we know that the Sermon on the, on the Mount is true because what we expect from others in our interaction with people is that they would treat us in the way that Jesus has outlined. This is how we want, to, we want and expect others to relate to us. And this is how Jesus calls citizens of the kingdom to live. Can I say that the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful? But it's an absolute beast. And you read Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, and if you don't see it as a beast, you've never really engaged with the Sermon on the Mount. It's beautiful. I read those words, and it creates within me a longing to mirror the kind of life that Jesus suggests that 
citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven should embody. But boy, the bar is way too high. It's impossible. It's a great ideal and a great idea. But in my experience, it's unrealistic and it's unlivable. And we see in the Sermon on the Mount something so incredibly beautiful, but something that is by and large unachievable. Because what Jesus does in in these chapters is challenge us at a level in which the Ten Commandments never did. And that is challenges the attitudes and the motives of our heart. And while externally we can have all of things lined up and neatly arranged, but I think if we were to be honest about what really goes on on the inside of us, in our acts of generosity, in our uh, engagement when we see a, an attractive um, person, what really goes on in the depths of our being, the Sermon on the Mount slays us. And it is both beautiful and a beast. Beautiful because it exposes what we are meant to be but a beast because it exposes what is actually going on in the depths of our hearts. There was a um, a teacher by the name of Virginia Owens, and I'm going to finish up in a sec. And she gave her students um, the Sermon on the Mount to read and to write an, an assignment on. Most of the students had actually never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. But when they went away and they read it, Every one of them hated the Sermon on the Mount. And here are just two of the responses of of her students. One student said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Here's another um, student They wrote, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, inhumane statements I have ever heard. And what Virginia Owens did, she said, um, she's an American teacher, she actually made this comment. She said, thankfully, um, that, um, that American society had got to a place where people could actually engage in the Sermon on the Mount without 2,000 years of cultural haze. And they are probably the most authentic responses to the Sermon on the Mount that you're likely to hear. Because we like to gloss over it and, and, and make it all nice and sanitized. But the words of Jesus at least slay me. And those of you I know, I've seen at times 
the words of Jesus slay you as well. And so, here is a picture of who we are meant to be. This is what it looks like when we are put to right. We just have a problem of enacting it and making it reality. And unless we can learn to tame this beautiful beast, then what we're going to be left, uh, left with is a concept of the kingdom of God that will continually frustrate us and create angst. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to learn how to tame the beast, how to tame the beautiful beast, how to tame the Sermon on the Mount, how to make the words of Jesus active and real in our lives so that we can be genuinely citizens of the kingdom. If you're going to ask a question, make it real easy. No, no, it's, not, it's not a question, it's probably more a statement. Um, I think what it does is that it exposes our need for Jesus. Like, um, the whole, you know, the communion and and our need for forgiveness, and uh, it exposes in us our, our imperfections. And I think without that we can run along merrily and we're all good because this is our standard. But when you compare it to God's standard, that's, that's where, we, where we need Jesus. So, yeah. And that's where, we'll, that's where we'll begin next week. Is that what the Sermon on the Mount does is actually pushes us to a place of recognising our need for Christ. And while it is beautiful, it's a brute and it's meant to slay us. It's meant to inspire us. And it's meant to slay us. But ultimately, it is meant to be a picture of who we are progressively becoming. And until we can understand how to tame the Sermon on the Mount, um, it cannot become our reality in substance. But the good news, and I want to leave you with some hope, is the good news is that what Jesus talks about there can become part of the fabric of who we are. Because if God is putting this world to rights, which is what we've been saying week after week after week after week, it actually begins with God putting us to right. Otherwise, we have a really grand, noble, fantastic statements that we make but they have to be earthed and grounded in substance and reality. And so we'll unpack what it means to tame the brute beast, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Stay tuned.